0: I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 6. We are concluding our series on the Lord's Prayer this morning. So what I want to do is I want to read Matthew chapter 6. Actually, I want you to have that open, and I'm going to actually have us say it, you you can read along on the screen, but we're going to say the Lord's Prayer together here, okay? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, this morning we wrap up our series on the Lord's Prayer. And my hope as we do so is that as we've spent time looking at this prayer, God has deepened not just our understanding, but our praying. We don't just want to learn more about prayer. That was not the goal of this series, to learn more about prayer. We want to learn to pray, right? We want to be a praying people, a people marked by a deep dependence on God, by our humble recognition of our own limitations and weaknesses, and by a happy trust in God's goodness and His promises. And we want to grow more and more in prayer, which is why we entitled this series, Teach Us to Pray. Because just like the disciples who first ask Jesus to do that. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. Just like them, we know that none of us has it all figured out when it comes to prayer. If you're in this room and you feel like you are an expert on prayer, come see me afterwards because I have a lot of questions. But we know that we all have room to learn and grow. So the hope is not that this series somehow solved all your struggles with prayer, but that God would use this series as a springboard into 2022. So let me encourage you, as we wrap up the series, between now and the new year, take some time, talk with a spouse, talk with a friend, talk with a fellow member here, and just let them know, share one way that God has used this series to grow your prayer life. Maybe one truth out of one sermon that you plucked out. Just something that God is stirring in your heart. And I think we'll find a lot of encouragement from one another that way. But as we come to the close this morning, it's good to remember what we've seen already. First, we saw that the God we pray to is not some impersonal force. He's not just some higher power out there. But if we are united to Christ, we come to our Father. A Father who loves us and knows what we need before we even ask. As our Father, He both stands eager to help us. And as our Father who art in heaven, He stands able to help us. And we then saw that the prayer divides into two sections. The first three requests focus on God's glory, and the second three requests focus on our needs. In the first section, we were taught that our top priorities in prayer should be that God's name would be hallowed and honored, that his kingdom would come increasingly and finally, and that his will would be done all over the earth. And then in section two, we saw that God wants us to come to him for our daily provision of our needs, for the daily pardon of our sins, and for our daily protection from evil. And all throughout the prayer, we saw that this is a prayer prayed by God's people for God's people. We pray not just to my Father, but our Father. And we pray not just for our own needs, but for our daily bread, for forgiveness of our sins, and that he deliver us from evil. Jesus is teaching us, even as he teaches us to pray, that as God's family, we're in this together. And that we help one another by prayer. So now we come to the doxology that ends the prayer. And now we come to a problem. Because if your Bibles are open, and I hope they are, you're looking up at the screen and you're looking down at your Bibles and you'll notice that that last part is most likely not in the text of your Bibles. It's probably in a footnote. So the problem is that this doxology isn't found in the Bible. At least not here in Matthew. So the question it raises is, so is it wrong for us to pray this? I mean, every other week what we've been praying is straight out of the Bible. So is it wrong that we include this last part? Or even another question is, why, why are you preaching on this, Dan, if it's not in the Bible? And those are great questions. And there's a few reasons. First, while, while this sentence at the end is not in the best and oldest manuscripts of the New Testament, meaning we don't think it was in this part of Matthew, it does show up very early in the life of the church. And by very early, I mean first century documents talking about the Lord's Prayer. But even more than that, we can and should pray this way, and we can and should preach about this, because while it may not be found here in the Bible, it wouldn't exactly be true to say it's not in the Bible. Because the theology that it teaches is all over your Bibles, And the wording itself was most likely drawn from somewhere else in the Bible. Now, somewhere else is 1 Chronicles 29, verses 10 through 13. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to look at that in just a minute. Not yet. Not yet. Thank you. (laughs) Now you guys got a sneak peek. So the question, though, is why, if it's not there in Matthew, when Jesus is teaching us his prayer, why does it show up so early? What was it that the first early Christians said, you know what, this should go at the end. And and why is it so consistent? I mean, you look at all kinds of documents that flow out of it, it's it's constantly there. So why? I think it's because it fits so perfectly. Notice how it forms a bookend of praise to the prayer. We start with, hallowed be your name. And we end with, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And in between, we have these prayer requests. So praise bookends it. What this is helping us see is a truth that's true for all prayer. See, here's the thing. Prayer and praise lead right into each other. As you're praising God for being a merciful Savior, it compels you to want to ask him for his forgiveness. And when you praise him as the gracious provider, you want to ask him to meet your needs. The reality is that as you're asking him to do these things that only he can do, it causes worship to well up in you and come out as praise. Prayer and praise, they play off each other, that they provoke each other. And when I thought about it, I thought, you know what these things are? Prayer and praise, they're like two kids in the backseat of a car. They can't leave each other alone. Like they will not. They're just constantly after each other provoking a response saying oh yeah do that oh yeah and so you're praying next thing you know you want to praise God as you're praising God you find yourself praying back and forth praise prayer praise prayer so that's why these things go together and what we're going to do this morning is something a little bit different if you're just joining us normally we, we pick a text of the Bible and we just walk through it but because of this unique situation where we're finishing the Lord's Prayer and this part of the text is not in the text we're going to look at a different text so we're going to look together at 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. But before we get there, I want to draw your attention to two words real quickly at the beginning of this last line. First, notice that the doxology begins with the word for. It's always important to notice the word for because it's telling us here's why we're asking these things. And here's why we're asking them to you, God. We're saying, God, hallow your name. Bring your kingdom. Cause your will to be done. Provide our needs. Pardon our sins. Protect us from evil. Because yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. And yours is the glory. So keep that in mind. This is the reason why we pray that way. Because this is true. Second, don't miss that word yours. Or if you prefer the old word, thine. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. We pray what we do, to whom we do, not just because there exists a kingdom somewhere. Not just because there's a power out there. Not just because there is such a thing as glory, but because all of them are his. They belong to him. And one of the questions, though, I want you to have at the forefront of your mind as we work our way through this doxology this morning is this Do we really mean it when we say, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory? Or is what's in our hearts really, mine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory? So, three questions to keep in mind as we go. These are three questions I want you asking yourselves. Whose kingdom will you live for? What power will you live by? And whose glory will you seek? The question we all have to answer is, will it be thine or mine? Okay? So with those questions in the back of my mind, Let's turn our attention to 1 Chronicles 29, and since we're just dropping right in, you've no idea what's been going on, let me give you some context. What's happening here is King David is on the throne of Israel, and he's at the high point of his kingdom here. Things are going well. Well, In fact, what, what has just occurred is he's gathered in all these supplies. I mean, he's donated tons and tons of stuff, given so much, and encouraged the people to give so much. They've donated supplies that his son Solomon will need to build God's temple when he takes over as king. So here, as David's going to pray in a second, they're celebrating the donation of this massive quantity of supplies. So we're going to read the first part of David's prayer, and what we're going to see is how it connects to the Lord's prayer. So hopefully you've already turned there. First Chronicles 29, starting in verse 10. I'm going to, I don't want you to put it up yet. I'm going to put it up in a second here. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Okay? So the question is, how are we going to connect this passage to the Lord's Prayer? obviously, I hope as you heard it, you're like, yeah, there's some similar wording. I'm hearing some of that. I think there's also a structural connection. I'm going to explain what that is in a second. It's not perfect, but I think it helps us organize what's in David's prayer and see how it connects to the Lord's prayer. So now you can put it up. So I got you this nice color-coded thing here. It's really fancy. So what I, what I want you to see is down at the bottom in the black box is the doxology of the Lord's Prayer that we're talking about. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And up top, we have the text that I just read from 1 Chronicles 29. And what I think is happening here is that there's this... This is, a fancy word is called a chiasm, where you start and the outsides match up, and then the next level matches up, and it comes to a point in the middle. And so if you look, I think on the outside is where we're talking about the glory of God. And you work your way into the green and you see it's talking about the power of God. And at the center, you see him talking about the kingdom. So, we're going to look at these, but what we're going to do is we're going to start in the middle and work our way out. And we're going to look at the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Alright? So, here we go. Let's think together about the kingdom first. So look look again at that box in the middle he just says right out yours is the kingdom O lord and you are exalted as head above all both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all so i want you to remember the situation i just described here here's david mighty king david who's just conquered all his enemies his kingdom is currently enjoying peace and prosperity he's at the height of his rule as king and yet, here David doesn't boast in his own accomplishments or his own accolades. doesn't say, look at what I've done. What does he say? He says, yours is the kingdom, O Lord. David has a lot. Everyone else could say, wow, you're the greatest king we've ever... He says, yours is the kingdom, O Lord. Because David looks around and knows that he's just a small part of something much bigger than himself. He knows that his kingdom, this kingdom that God was building, was not about David's greatness... What about God's? David might have some authority as an earthly king, but God is the one who is head above all. David has a little bit of power and authority, but God is the one who rules over all. See, David is this little k king, but God is the all caps king who is sovereign over all things in all places and all times. And from the earliest pages of scripture, we see that God is building a kingdom made up of his redeemed people, living in his pleasant place under his good and kind rule. That's what's going on in the Bible. If you want to know in a snapshot, in a sentence, what's God up to in the Bible? that. He's redeeming a people to live in his pleasant place under his good and kind rule. And David here in First Chronicles is a great foreshadowing of what God's going to do one day. See, here's what we see. David, the father, is giving his son Solomon the kingdom. In fact, if your Bibles are open and you scan your eyes down in chapter 29 to verse 22, what you'll see is Solomon, the son, is anointed as king and seated on the throne. And David, his father, had given everything that his son would need to build a temple. David, the father, gave it and Solomon the son built it. Solomon, the son who would enjoy a kingdom of unmatched peace and prosperity. Fast forward. One day, God the Father would anoint his son to take his throne as his king. God the Father would give all that would be needed for this new temple to be built. He would give the most precious treasure in existence. He would give his only son, to die for sinners, who would then be redeemed and built up like living stones into a temple for God's presence to dwell in. The Father gave all that would be needed, but it is Jesus the Son who would do the building, declaring to Peter, I will build my church. And God foretold this kingdom for hundreds and thousands of years. Like, we can't even get our minds around, like, We get excited, like our time horizon is maybe a couple months. Christmas starts getting close and we get excited. Like, okay, that's it. But the Israelites had a time horizon of decades, centuries, thousands of years. They're just looking and longing for this kingdom. A kingdom where God's people would be freed from sin. Where they would be safe from every danger and enemy. Where they would enjoy the goodness and presence of God again. And they wouldn't have to fear anything. A kingdom of joy and love and peace. And so the people, they read about this, they talked about it, they sung about it, they whispered about it, and they looked and looked and looked and longed for this promised king who would usher in the kingdom of God. And at Christmas, we celebrate the arrival of the kingdom in Jesus. Listen to Luke one thirty one. Here the angel tells Mary, behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is why we sing these songs because Christmas is the coming of the king. That's why we sing Hark! Listen, the herald angels sing. What do they sing? Glory to the newborn. Thank you. And when Jesus grew up, so it wasn't just about, oh, that's, we'll sing songs about this baby because he's a newborn king. Jesus grows up, and as soon as he gets on the scene, what's his message? Mark 1:14. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, it's here. What you've been looking and looking and looking for is now here. And it's here in me. The kingdom is at hand because I'm at hand. And what does Jesus tell us in that passage? Is the proper response to hearing the good news of the kingdom? Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, turn from the sin of living for your own little kingdom. He says, guys, that's that's what got you into trouble. That's what got you to Isaiah 59. Doing your evil deeds, separation from God, not knowing peace, living for your little kingdoms. That's the trouble. That's called sin. So turn away from ignoring and rejecting the true king and instead let earth receive her king. Welcome him and embrace him by faith. Trust him and believe that this king died to make you a part of his kingdom. Here's more good news. As David prays in 1 Chronicles, and as we say in the Lord's Prayer, the kingdom is God's. Yours is the kingdom. But guess what? He gives it to us. It's his, but he gives it to us. In Luke 12, 32, Jesus tells us, Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you kingdom that kingdom is ours it's his but he loves to give it away so he says i love that jesus says don't be afraid like you have nothing to fear because god knows who you are god knows what you've done god's not waiting for you to impress him it says it's his good pleasure to give you the kingdom because he's already rescued you from your sin and brought you into the kingdom of his beloved son and this wasn't a new idea at Christmas as though God just thought that would be an interesting way to do it. No, Daniel prophesied this giving of the kingdom all the way back in Daniel 7. There, if you're familiar with Daniel 7, there's this great passage where one like a son of man comes on the clouds to the Ancient of Days where he has presented a global kingdom made up of people from every tribe and language and nation and people. He receives a kingdom of them But that's not all that we read in Daniel 7. Listen to Daniel 7, 18. It says, But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. The saints shall receive the kingdom. The Son is given the kingdom and the saints shall receive the kingdom and possess it forever. How is that possible that the saints receive the kingdom? Because the Father loves to give the kingdom to those who trust in his Son. When we trust in Jesus, friends, listen to the words of 2 Peter 1. It says, for those who trust in Jesus, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this is what's going on in the kingdom. When we're talking about the kingdom of God, that's what we're talking about. The question for us this morning is, which kingdom will you live for? Will you live for your tiny, temporary kingdom? Yes, you are the one in charge, seemingly. But to what end? Will you live for your tiny, temporary kingdom or for God's glorious, eternal kingdom? Will you live for your kingdom of never-ending work and frustration or his kingdom of never-ending rest and joy? This is a question we're confronted with. But let's keep moving. Let's move outward now. So we're into the green section now, thinking about God's power. When we say yours is the power, look at verse 11a. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. And in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. So in these two verses, David's, he's piling up words here. Like he's, he's probably got his ancient thesaurus out. And he's like, what else can I say about God? And he's like, uh, power and glory and victory and greatness and majesty and might. And while they all have slightly different nuances, and they bring out different points of emphasis, when you put them together, they're all pointing to one big idea. And the one idea is simply, yours is the power. God has All power. Everything in heaven on earth belongs to him and is in his hands to do with it what he will. That is a power that no one else can claim. He has power to do whatever he pleases. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. When we think of the most powerful people in the world, we associate power with the ability to do what you want. Even if, whether it's good or bad, if they can get away with it, if they can do it, if they can pull it off, we say, wow, what a powerful person. And the Bible minces no words in saying that God does all that he pleases. Job 42 says, no purpose of his can be thwarted. Nothing is impossible with God and no one can stop him or stay his hand. Why? Because as Psalm 147 says, great is our Lord and abundant in power he's abundant in power in fact Psalm 62 says it more bluntly it says power belongs to God like it, power doesn't belong to AEP or IPL or whatever they're going by now power belongs to God it's his that's what we're saying when we say thine is the power we say you can do it all God it all belongs to you and you can and will do whatever you please and accomplish all your good purposes. So what kind of power are we talking about here? I'm glad you asked. Jeremiah 51:15 says, It is he who made the earth by his power. Isaiah 40 verse 26 says, He calls the stars out by name each night and by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Deuteronomy 4.37 says that God brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power. And we could go on and on. But what I want you to see is this power, this is a creating, calling, rescuing power. It, is, it defies categories and explanations. But, but those things are not even the most amazing display of power. And that's saying something like, he made the world... Everything you see, he did by his power. He makes sure each star is in its place by his power. He rescued a people from an oppressive government through signs and wonders, not through military might. But that's not the most impressive display of power. So what is? We see it in Ephesians 1 when it tells us about the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. God's power raised Jesus from the dead. I know that you're here in church like, yes, pastor, we know that, but don't ever get over this. We have lots of powerful ways in our world where we can take life. Think of the incalculable ways we've dreamed up and built and devised to take life. But none of us has found a way to raise it from the dead. Only God's power can do that. Only God's power gives life to the dead, brings light out of darkness, and brings hope when things look hopeless. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it says, is what's at work in us who trust in him. This is unbelievable. In fact, it says this power is necessary to be a follower of Jesus. This is important. Following Jesus is not for the strong and powerful. Now, following Jesus is for those who are weak and exhausted. I want you to think about this with me. After Jesus was raised from the dead and was getting ready to ascend into heaven, as he was sending his disciples out on mission, do you remember what he told them in Luke 24? This is right after he says repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. And he says you were witnesses of this thing. Jesus doesn't say so go do it. What does he say? Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He says this to the disciples who had just spent years with Jesus. They were walking around with Jesus 24-7. They'd heard all the teachings. They'd written down some of the teachings. They'd seen miracles. They'd watched him die for their sins. They'd they'd seen him resurrected. They saw the risen Christ. And yet Jesus says, you need power. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to go live for me, you can't do this on your own strength. You need power. Why? Because following Jesus isn't possible in our own strength. And some of you may have never heard this. You may think that following Jesus is just about making the right choices, checking the right boxes. Like, as long as you go to church, stay out of big trouble, and own a Bible, you're good. I can do that. In fact, any of us can do that. But that's not what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is about a supernatural life that none of us has the power to do. It's about having the very power of God at work in you. So you say, well, how can that happen? How can the power of God come? Here's the good news of God's power. When Jesus came, he came in the power of the Holy Spirit. When that same angel tells Mary about her son, he explains how she, a virgin, would conceive. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So here we are seeing God's power is evident in Jesus from the moment he was conceived. His power did what was impossible. It brought life where none was. Again, we all know that the virgin birth is one of the core tenets of Christianity. But it's impossible. We should never get over the fact that the power of God did what was impossible. But it wasn't just his birth. Later in Luke, we're told that this same Jesus he returned in the power of the spirit with authority and power. He commanded unclean spirits and they came out and the power of God was with him to heal. If you follow the life of Jesus, you see power, 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 power. And then, inexplicably, the powerful son of God died what looked like a death of weakness. It looked as though the powers of darkness and evil were just too strong for him. He was good. He was maybe even great. But they had won. Why would we say that? Well, there in the ground his body lay. Light of the world, by darkness, slain. But then... But then... Bursting forth... In glorious day, up from the grave, he what? He rose again by the power of God. And now as he stands in victory, sin's curse is broken and has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And you know what that means? Now, no power of hell and no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand because till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Of Christ I'll stand that's the power of Christmas and this power is given to us Isaiah 40 29 says he this God gives power to the faint and to him who has no might he increases strength he gives power friends how does he do it how does he give power through the gospel. You say, what? What do you mean? Romans 1 tells us the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First Corinthians tells us the word of the cross, this message about a, a dying and resurrecting Savior, it's folly to those who are perishing. People on the outside of Christ, they look at it and they're like, that's ridiculous. You guys believe in a, in a guy that lived 2,000 years ago and he died and then you say he came back to life and now he's He's somewhere else, not on earth. He's in heaven and he's coming back on clouds one day. That's ridiculous. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When you admit your sin and turn from it and trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to rescue, friends, God saves you by his power. And through the gospel, we receive power. Through the gospel, we receive power to change How many of you have ever felt powerless to change? Through the gospel, God gives power to change. He gives power to believe every promise, power to endure every suffering, power to be freed from any sin, power to love our enemies, power to forgive, power to be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, and power to have no guilt in life and no fear in death. In the gospel, we receive power to hope again. That's why I often at the end of our services, I close with Romans fifteen thirteen, saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the power of God at work in you. And maybe you're here and you think, man, that sounds really good. I need that. I feel powerless. I feel hopeless. I feel unable. But you have no idea, Pastor, just how weak I am. You have no idea how fragile I am. I'm barely holding it together. It's a small miracle. I made it this morning. Friends, I have good news for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. He's not looking for the all-stars. In fact, he designed it this way. That's why we have this treasure in jars of clay. Weak, breakable, fragile vessels. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So if you're weak, oh, you are just who God is looking for, to show off his power. And friend, God's power can do so much more in your life than you can ever imagine. You are not hopeless, you are not permanently stuck, you are not too far gone, because Ephesians 3 reminds us that he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think. How? According to the power at work in us. So what power will you live by? your own best efforts, your own strength, or by God's limitless power at work in those who trust in Jesus. Yes, God's is the power, but God freely shares it with us, his weak people in the gospel. So that now we can say with Peter in First Peter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And speaking of glory, that brings us to our last point. Look at the two outside parts with me here in the lighter blue. Verse 10b, David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Drop down to 13. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. As David prays, he declares that his God is worthy of blessing and praise because of his glorious name. Now we talked about this at the beginning of the series when we talked about what does it mean for God's name to be hallowed? But just to remind her, God's name is not simply the letters that are put together that he goes by. God's name is who he is. It's his character, it's his being. And God's glory is the display of the greatness and goodness of all that he is. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see God's glory. And what does God say? I'll make all my goodness pass before you. Moses wants to see glory. God says, okay, I'll show you my goodness. And then he shows his goodness by declaring his name, by announcing to us just who God is. Who is he? He's the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Friends, God's glory is his mercy and grace and patience and love and faithfulness and forgiveness on display for all to see. And guess what we celebrate at Christmas? The glory of God came to us in Jesus. John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As Hebrews says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. All that God is radiates out of Jesus. Think about a radiator. Like if you have like those old heaters, the heat just radiates out of it like it's so hot in itself the heat just flows from it that's what Jesus is is that he's the radiating glory of God all the grace and truth and mercy and sovereignty and kindness and goodness and justice and holiness of God is in Jesus so when we want to see the glory of God that's where we look we look in the face of Christ And that's where all his goodness and greatness is on display for us to see. When God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him, and when he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus, do you know why he did it? To the praise of his glorious grace. He redeemed us, forgave us, gave us an inheritance in Christ. Why? To the praise of his glory. He sealed us with his Holy Spirit to keep us all the way home. Why? To the praise of his glory. Friends, God's glory is most clearly seen in him taking rebels like us and making a kingdom out of them. And showing his power through weak people. And in showing his grace and goodness to undeserving sinners. All of it is for his glory. And that is why we pray, yours is the glory. And notice as we close that none of these things is merely temporary. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. We might ask for daily bread, but we live and we pray with our eyes fixed firmly on eternity. We pray to the one whose kingdom lasts forever, whose power knows no end, and whose glory will never run out. And then the prayer ends with amen. That's not a throwaway word. Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, we know, but why would you mention that? That's not just the Christian way of saying the end. Here's my little acrostic for you to help you remember, because I want, I want amen to mean something to us. So here's my kind of acrostic to help you remember what we're saying when we say amen. A means we agree. When someone is praying and we say amen, we're saying yes, that's right. Me too, I want that too. Yes, God, I agree with that sentiment. A is agree. M means make it so. We're asking God to do what we've just asked. Hear, God, and answer. Make it so, God. We agree, make it so. I'm cheating here, E-N. Think of it as in. It reminds us that it's all in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. And that is why through Him we utter our Amen to God for His glory. So we agree, make it so in Jesus. That's what you're saying when you say Amen. In Jesus, the Father's name is hallowed. In Jesus, the kingdom has come, is coming, and will come. In Him, God's will is done. In Him, all our needs are provided. In him, all our sins are forgiven. And in him, we are delivered delivered from evil and brought safely to our kingdom home. And that is why through him, we utter our amen to God for his glory. Why? For his is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, we worship you this morning as the one to whom belongs the kingdom, the power, and the glory. We confess that too often we do live for our own little kingdoms, trying to live in our own power and for our own glory. We confess and we turn from that and we say, oh God, we want so much more. We want to live for your kingdom, your glorious eternal kingdom. God, would you change us, help us live for something bigger. And God, would you help us to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. Would you work in us so that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we might live for your glory. God, this Christmas, help us to see all that came to us in Jesus. It wasn't just the birth of another baby. But it was the coming of a kingdom, the coming of your power, and the coming of your glory. And it came so that we might share in them. We praise you for that, and we thank you that all of it is ours in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.